All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of the Modern Educator Podcast. I am joined here by my friend, Amy. So, Amy, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the world? Thank you. I'm Amy Colasuno. Uh, I... This will be my 23rd year teaching uh, all in Clark County, uh, and I am a native of Las Vegas, so I was also a student of Clark County School District. Um, I am a U.S. history. I have a master's in U.S. history um, and primarily teach advanced placement and am a reader for the advanced placement exam. Yes, and I am a reader as well, and Amy and I especially bonded when we were both (laughs) at the uh, AP conference in Orlando last year. Uh, I, I don't know if it was right around this time, but we were hanging out at the Disney World pool, uh, just yes, thinking, we thinking how great this was. And now here we are in the <laughs> pandemic. So this is this is. Uh, this we is, should be in Boston right we now. We should. Well, I, I don't think I had the chance to go this year, but you certainly did. So that's a super bummer. Um, and uh, so yeah, you, you're kind of the you're you are the lead AP U.S. history teacher in Southern Nevada. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So awesome. So and and would you say is that your favorite subject? To teach? Oh, definitely. I definitely. love telling stories. In fact, that's what I tell people I do when they ask. They don't know me. I meet them randomly. They're like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "I tell stories all day because I love the narrative of U.S. history." Yeah. All right. Awesome. Okay. And what would you say is your educational philosophy? So teaching as long as I have, you can't get stuck on one thing because it's always changing. And I think that that is the best educational philosophy to realize that while one thing may work for one group of students or one generation or even one class period, it may not work for another. And so to be flexible and uh, being able to think on your feet and how can I change what I'm doing to most um, identify with the students that are sitting right in front of me. Okay, and so you've been teaching for 23 years, so how has your philosophy adapted over time? Like, what, what, how, how is your classroom different 23 years ago than how it is today? You know, I, what I think is sad for our teachers today, I had a lot more freedom in my classroom when I was a first-year teacher. Made a lot of mistakes. Do I, You know, don't get me wrong. I, And the time that I feel like I'm perfect is the time that I need to retire because um, I don't think that you can be perfect in in anything. I think you need to continually learn to grow and and learn new strategies. Um, But I think the the biggest thing that has changed since I have been in um, the district is how students learn. Uh, We have come upon a very digital, a very visual um, uh, generation and the Techniques that I used my first five years of teaching, uh, there's no way that they would work with the students. And what were some of those techniques? So, I'll, you know, uh, okay, I'm going to date myself. <laughs> PowerPoint was Whoa. the biggest thing when I first became uh, a teacher. And so, I, you know, instead of going from the overhead projector, you know, was putting all of your lectures on PowerPoint. And so teachers that that was the mark of a good teacher is Mm. that you would sit there with a PowerPoint presentation and go through it. And if you could put visuals in it, like you were like on that. And so that's what teachers were doing. It was the stand and deliver. And, you know, as much as I love to tell stories, as much my kids love me to tell stories, I also know that that is not now how students learn the best. Hmm. Well, and I, I've had this conversation with a lot of other educators on my podcast, too. And I 
I think stand and deliver is necessary, but it can't be 100% of your work. Correct, yes. Yeah. And, like, well, hey, like, PowerPoints is probably 70% of what I do, Mm -hmm. but the other 30% is stuff that's pretty interactive and engaging and students working in small groups and that kind of stuff. Exactly. I think that collaboration, and we've learned that just in our, we used to teach in a vacuum. I I taught, I did my thing, nobody came and checked on me. One teacher would be at the Civil War, and one teacher would be at World War One. And, you know, well, if that kid had to change classes, oh well, you know. Um, and I think that idea of collaboration that's in the business world and now in the teaching is what we need to teach our students to do as well and having that collaboration um i also don't believe in a silent classroom if you walk in my classroom and it's silent that's because they're taking a test um i I think i could say the same thing about my classroom and so even when i'm doing my stand and deliver there is a checkpoint every 10 to 15 minutes where it's like okay turn to your neighbor what's one thing you learned what's one thing you don't understand you know um and so they are talking with each other about what they had just learned Hmm. yeah yeah the the what is it called? Shoulder partner? Oh, I think there's a better word for that. But yeah, but yeah I've heard that strategy before. Uh, okay, so um, what were some of your greatest successes in the classroom? Um, so mine is, is my connection to students and how mm. I can get them to be more positive. Um, I have several success stories. I had a student that was failing all year, um, but I knew that he knew his stuff. He just wasn't turning in things. He wasn't, because he wasn't doing the things, he wasn't being able to do very well on tests. And so at the semester exam, I said to him, I said, you are going to fail this semester, but I know you know things because of classroom discussions. So you get a C on the semester exam and I will give you that C for the semester. And then you need to prove to me. He got a C. He ended up passing the AP exam with a four that year. He hey, came to everything. Um, and so watching that turnaround in students when it finally was like that aha moment, like I can do this. It's one of my great success stories. Um, I have another student who came to me and he was a sophomore in my junior US history class. And he's like, I want to start a nonprofit. And I said, okay, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to make life easier in South America for students. And so he did research and we helped him as a school to develop it. And now he um, is out and in the business world and doing his nonprofit and is just doing amazing things. So my success stories are my students and I could go on for forever um, with that, but that is you know, we don't get paid a lot. I'm finally comfortable after 23 years and uh, a master's degree plus, you know, where I feel okay in how much I make, but that's not my success. My success is when I have students come back to me year after year and say, you changed how I thought about life, history, current events, whatever. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure that being a teacher is probably a big part of your personality of sort of how you define yourself in society and it's honestly me too yeah like you know someone asks what what are you i'm like well i'm a teacher like that's step one and then maybe i'm an american and a man (laughs) and all the other things and i think that they they prone to that like as soon as they find out i'm a teacher i get a ton of people saying okay explain this to me (laughs) okay can you explain what's happening this with this or can you explain what's happening or i just saw something on social media um and so i definitely get those messages from 
even acquaintances that say, hey, so-and-so said you know a lot about this. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Um, so what are your greatest learning failures in the classroom? I'm sure 23 years, 23 years. Not, not every day is a great day. No, no. Um, so... I really think that, that teaching is a gift. I feel that you can take as many education classes as you want, but if you don't have a passion for it and you don't have kind of this backwards momentum, this insight, it's not, you know, you're never going to be a great teacher. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't have failures. And, you know, I... It, it's hard because there's sometimes you have this magnificent class and then you have these three students that, that tear don't, you down. right? Oh, <laughs> that just play on you. And so I take things very personally because I put so much passion into my teaching and into my instruction. When my students like are just like bald faced, like, go ahead, teach me something. <laughs> like, it drives me insane that they aren't accepting of in our current pandemic. I had several students that after we closed schools in March, just I never saw again, yeah, never saw again. They were happy with their grade and never saw them again. And it killed me because I think that I could have done so much more to help them in their high school or their AP or whatever life they were going in. But because they just chose to let the pandemic guide their life instead of their educational um, career. Um, and that killed me. Like, I take it personally. And so I think that that's probably my biggest weakness or failure as a teacher is that I take personally when my students choose to fail. Yeah, and I, I can relate to that because I know that I also did online lessons during the, the pandemic, especially with my AP students. And AP scores are now out. And it's, it, it's basically, you got a five or you got a one for, for my students. <laughs> oh, no. And the kids who got fives were, were je they showed up to most of my online lessons and they were good throughout the whole school year. But the kids that I really needed to give that more personal attention to, to reach more, never showed up to yeah. my online lessons. So I, I feel, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm personally, do I want to say angry? Do I want to say disappointed? I just, I know in my heart that I could have reached those kids better if I was physically in the room and with them. Every day. Yes. Yeah. Totally agree. <sighs> totally agree. But, but yeah, no, and I've, I've definitely personally taken issue when kids let me down. And, and, and I, I remember even when I was a summer camp counselor, when I was 18, I had this evaluation review and my boss at the summer camp like said it was a negative thing she said that i was too emotional and I, like I'd, I'd like to think i'm a pretty stable dude but i mean i definitely will get emotional when a kid lets me down see, or and i like to use me. the word passionate passionate i, I think okay. it's passionate more than emotion i think that great teachers are passionate about their subject they're passionate about seeing their students achieve. Yeah. They're passionate about being a good teacher um, and not just, I, you know, I'm to that point in my career where honestly I could walk in every day, put my head down on my desk, <laughs> give them book work. There's nothing happening to me, right? Um, but that, I can imagine doing that every day. Like yeah. it, if teaching was a burden to me, I'd need to find another because that's just not me. 
because I need to have passion in my life. Yeah, and and most days for me are good days. I would say 80% plus are good days. And I've seen some of my colleagues who it's almost like every day is just a terrible right? day. Yes. And they come in, they're just like, ah, I hate these kids. Rah, rah, rah. We don't never get paid enough money. Rah, rah, rah. And like, it's, it's such a negative vibe from some people. And I just ask you the question, why are you here? Exactly. Like, this isn't a good deal. No. If what you care about is no. money. And I've had to. So I'm also an instructional leader at my school. So I'm over my department. And I've had to have those conversations with teachers where wow. they are just completely negative. And I've said to them, why are you here then? Yeah. And I think that's, and it doesn't matter if it's teaching or the business world or, you know, wherever you're at. If you get up every day and you dredge your work, you need to make a change in whatever you're doing. Yeah. Actually, my first year here in Clark County uh, was also the, the first year for some other teachers at my school. And one of them, this this teacher girl cried every day and just was so emotionally attached to the kids. But in a bet you see, I like to think I'm in a good emotion. Yes. I'm, I have the passion. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, some, some people like... The kids don't do their homework and they cry about yeah, it. And you got to like, get over Whoa, that. Oh, <laughs> like you, you can't you can't get them all to do it. Okay, like some sometimes they're gonna take a loss. Uh, okay, um, next question, Amy. Do you have any unique classroom strategies? Um, so I was one of the very first to kind of go to a blended type of mm. situation. Um, several years ago, I uh, got with a team of teachers at Las Vegas High School, and we developed an academy that was all flipped. And all of the course workload was done on a computer in labs. And then from those workloads, we would group the students into high, medium, low, and bring them in in their skill levels in smaller groups. That's cool. Um, and then teach them and have activities. And um, logistically in a traditional school, it just got to where it wasn't feasible to continue doing. So we had to let the project go, which I was so sad about um, because I think that those kids actually learned more um, within those. So I try to do that in my classroom. Um, I definitely, as you said, I do small groups. A lot of their stuff they have to do um, as homework, as far as looking at PowerPoints, um, watching different um, videos, or I've just put on podcasts now. I'm getting into Ooh. the podcast realm. So I'm very excited to so listening excited. to those so that they have the narrative. And then when they come in, doing small group activities where I divide them into high, medium, and low and give them all a general task and then as they complete them, which I know they're going to do in different levels, adding on to that task or taking away from that task. Um, and um, I think that it helps. I think that I know students love to choose their own groups and want to be with their friends. And when I do a major project, I might do that because you have to have that trust mm. um, that's within. But um, on an everyday basis, they could be working with different students, um, not just the ones that they are right close with so there's a lot of movement in my classroom as well yeah something i'm a big champion of if i was ever to get one of these fancy education degrees my my master's thesis would be on group writing where you pair a kid who's a strong writer with a kid who's a weak writer and you make the weak writer do the physical writing 
but you have the strong rider be the coach. Be the coach. And I think think it works pretty well, especially in the AP world. Yes. But as I said my scores earlier, I wanted to (laughs) to keep that going all the way to the end of the school year. And it... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure those weaker kids just kind of drop the ball at the end. Well, and I think that that's, you know, so whatever essay, whenever we start a different type of essay writing, so with the AP exam, for those that aren't familiar, at least U.S., there are like three different types of writing you have to do. And so whenever we kind of start a new basis or foundation, we always write the essay together in class. So yeah. I will give it to them, and then I will say, okay, your group going to come up with a thesis, your group's going to come up with some supporting details, you're, you know, and again, you can stagger that um, as far as where your kids are um, within their ability levels. Um, we, in our AP classes, in our general ed classes here in Clark County, have such a wide divide um, of kids that have this ability versus this ability, high, low, medium, um, and doing, um, we called it the um, Inspire Academy, and seeing how well you also then Kids know where they sit. They know who the high flyers are. They know who the lower, you know, and when you put them together and they realize that they're all at the same level, they tend to be more aggressive in answering questions and showing what they know. Um, They can't sit in the background and let the high flyers answer all the questions. Yeah, and and so I think... You, then you believe that the uh, is it called the inclusive classroom? Is mm-hmm. that the classroom that supposedly has kids from all levels? Yes. So you disagree with that educational thinking? Um, I I like that we have them, but I do feel that when you have that, you know, I have kids that are going to go to Harvard, and I have kids that have come in this country two years ago in the exact same room, um, and. <sighs> It's really hard to judge them at their same abilities. I want to push those kids that come into me already with skills higher, and I want to bring those lower, I would say language functioning more than anything kids, up to where they feel comfortable within my classroom. And so sometimes you do need to separate that out and get them to a place where they're all comfortable. That's my like number one in my classroom. I want kids to feel safe. Um, and in fact, when I ask questions, the, usually the first thing I say is, okay, I don't want the right answer. Somebody give me a wrong answer. What's the wrong answer? So that, you know, and I'll get aliens. And I'm like, okay, why is aliens the wrong answer? And, I'll, and we'll have a conversation. Okay, give me another wrong answer. And that way they have free, yeah, a free feeling that, you know, I don't have to be right all the time. I can put something out, and even if I'm wrong, then we're going to talk together about why it's wrong. Well, and, and one thing that I am a huge champion of is when the kid says the wrong answer, or maybe there's a tad bit of correctness in that answer, I guide the kid to the right answer. Correct. But I know some, some teachers, and I'm going to say are weaker teachers, will just shoot down that kid exactly. say kid you're wrong and that totally breaks that kid's confidence and they're significantly less likely to ever raise their hand in the future exactly so yeah you gotta yeah. you gotta build the like knowledge safe classroom safe it build yes. it up uh okay so what advice would you give to a new educator oh, this is hard i wish i was one of those that like totally proposed <laughs> pushed teachers in the classroom i think there's so many 
political and administrative things that go against teachers, mm. um, new teachers today. I don't know if I could be a new teacher today. Wow. Uh, I've, wow, you know, I've gotten Amy. to the place in my career that I'm pretty much left alone and, you know, I have a reputation so they know that I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, but I look at my new teachers, um, and I feel sorry for them, but I think Ouch. the best thing that I would tell them is to become very comfortable with your content. I think that comfortableness with your content is that then helps you to be able to have classroom management, that then helps you to be able to think more flexible on your feet with the instructional strategy that you want to do is that comfort with what you're teaching. Uh, when I first started teaching, I get my PowerPoints, right? I'll stand and deliver. I practice in my bedroom the night before. I put my PowerPoint on my computer and I would teach to my bed. Uh, and so that I felt comfortable with the knowledge that I was delivering. Um, and so I think that comfort in your content to be, you know, very good. I would and I never did but I would totally tell teachers today to go sub to get a sub license first while you're getting your education degree and go into elementary middle and high and number one make sure that you're not doing it just because we have holidays and weekends off and the summer off that you're doing it because you want to be in the classroom and then to see what level you are um, I get a lot of student teachers, I've had a lot, that just do not belong in a high school setting, but probably would do amazing things in a middle school or an elementary setting. But in their heads, they always figured they were high school teachers. Um, and unfortunately with education, you get so far in your education degree that starting all over, back. you can't yeah. go back. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that would be as soon as you know that you want to be an educator, get a sub license, because that's going to be the worst it's going to get. We yeah. know this. Kids behave for subs the worst that you're going to see. Um, and so it will really let you know if this is something that you can do. Yeah, and I was a summer camp counselor for four years, and I think there was a whole lot of teaching in that. You know, it was teaching games to elementary school kids. And then I subbed in San Diego for two years, I taught in South Korea for two years, and then I subbed in San Diego for another two years. So I had probably a decade of quality experiences before I actually came to the classroom here in Clark County. And yeah, I learned all kinds of stuff about, uh, and, and yeah, when I was a summer camp counselor, I never really counseled teenagers. And I knew I was good with elementary kids, but I was like, I just... I just want to talk about the higher level stuff. Yeah. You know, and I I think I think if you were a teenager in my classroom today, you could see a little bit of that summer camp counselor vibe, but I do tend to focus on the higher level thinking, not so much of the song and dance it's entertainment, like... <laughs> which which you absolutely need as an elementary school like teacher. Like a song and dance. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually uh, used to live with three elementary school teachers uh, in Clark County, and you could you could tell within the first like ten minutes of meeting them that they, they were, were elementary, elementary teachers because they're I think just. So you also sometimes have to take those. Ele my kids love picture books. My <laughs> my high school juniors they'll love when I. I'm like, and, and I bring out my book and they're like, story time. <laughs> and I have a stool and I sit on it and I let them come and sit around my feet. And you've got these big old, huge six, four football players <laughs> sitting crisscross applesauce waiting for the picture book. It's what? amazing. I mean, yes, it's not an everyday strategy, but 
I have found that some of those those things that in elementary could be brought over and we never work with each other. Yeah, I think that's true. what is sad in education is that you have elementary and you have secondary and we never really work with each other and share ideas. I, my mom's a preschool teacher. That's how I knew about picture books, right? So, and how to read a picture book, you know, off to the side of your arm and how to, you know, those types of strategies that work well with secondary as well. And I think that we could help with elementary students to kick up that level of critical thinking, even in grade school students. Yeah, no, I've definitely had a lot of, of conversations with my elementary friends about all that stuff. So it's, yeah, it, and it, you're right. We are segregated in the, yeah. the middle school, high school world and the <laughs> elementary world. We never really interact in any meaningful way in this district, and it's strange. Yep. Um, oh, oh, there was something else I wanted to go off on this topic. I was, I was, I was flowing so well. Oh, yes. Uh, in, in all my years of subbing, I picked up a lot of really cool strategies from people I would never have expected. Like, there was this French teacher at Helix High School who I subbed for, and she had this really cool way of doing test corrections. And I'm, I'm, I definitely stole that strategy mm -hmm. and put it into my social studies classroom. And uh, also, like, you know, my first year here at CCSD, as I said, I, I really feel like I was kind of teaching for 10 years. And I was a new teacher, but I think it was pretty clear that I, like... You had the experience. I had the experience, and I wasn't—I mm -hmm. wasn't as new as some of these other people. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and some of these brand new teachers did just like you said. Uh, one of them talked to me privately and said, "High school is too hard for me. I think I should go into elementary." But I've just graduated college as a, a secondary teacher, and I'd have to restart my whole education to be uh, elementary. So they—they they really should have gotten. The, the free trial yeah. of substitute teaching. And I feel that that's how we... So, I, as I said, I have a master's in history because I hated my education classes. Hated them in I college. I did too. It was and kind of a waste of my time. I, exactly. I don't Sorry, think that I San got Diego any... Sorry, I know. I, BYU. <laughs> uh, you know. I don't feel that I knew what I was heading forth in a classroom. And so, I think that that's where we need to look at to change education is yeah. that in how we teach teachers we should teach them all levels there should be some type of practicum in all levels that they do so you can make this but um i i do i think subbing is such an interesting idea of getting in and doing and i love how you said that you learn from different teachers i think that's also where we're lacking yeah. in education is that we will bring in these consulting firms for like six figures and spend all this money that tell us nothing when we have great examples of amazing teachers and weaker teachers on our campuses and i have actually flown through my admin and if we go back to face-to-face -face teaching on campus this year um i we are giving teachers every teacher um one day a month where they'll get a sub and what they do is they go around and just observe different teachers in their building um and they can choose they should go outside their department as an instructional leader we i do this all the time is i go and observe not for evaluative purposes but more of where are we sitting as a school and i have learned so much going and just even for 15 minutes sitting in another teacher's classroom both good and bad 
Um, and so when I do get a student teacher, that is also what I, those first two weeks that they're with me, they're observing me, but I'm sending them out to other teachers and to other disciplines as well so that they can see. Same with like special ed. They're, they do amazing. I could never do it. But it's a lot of patience. Yes. But I love to send my student teachers into a special ed room and say, look at what they do, because I think you also need to grow that respect for teachers that are teaching other things than you are. Yeah, no, and it is kind of sad that in my, what, five years now at CCSD, I have never watched another teacher That's teach. That's very sad. And it's, We just don't do it. We don't do it. And I know there were some schools in California that did hire me as a sub to sub a teacher's classroom. The teacher was on campus, mm -hmm. and that teacher bounced around and just learned from other teachers or gave other teachers and advice. And it's something I think that every teacher needs to go push with their admin. We always have extra subs hanging around um, middle of the week, you know? Yeah. And so Wednesdays. you give, yes. And so you give your kids something that your sub can do and go and just start. But you also have to have, and I do love that at Las Vegas High School, you have to have a camaraderie that when a teacher walks into your room, you don't all of a sudden get panicked mm. that there's something going on. And so it was, you know, told to the teachers, like, look, you're going to see, and it was first the instructional leaders or the department chairs. Um, we call ourselves instructional leaders instead. Um, you know, they're going to come in. They're not evaluating you. They're not going to their su your supervisor. They're not tattling. They're going to come in and they're going to say, look, this is what I saw. And we're actually told not to use teachers' names when we then get back together and say, I saw this strategy that really worked. Or I saw this strategy several times. Maybe there are teachers that are miscommunicating a policy or something in the classroom that we need to communicate better to students and to teachers. Um, and so we would talk about the strengths and the weaknesses we saw, and then we would bring it back to a staff meeting and say, this is what we saw. What can we do to make our school better? And I, I recall there was, I think there was some of that that happened in Rancho High School years ago, but the whole purpose wasn't for these people to come, and, and people did come into my classroom, and it was sort of announced, they're looking for Vygotsky and learning. They're looking for group work. And the lesson they came in for was a lesson, you know, it's like hour and a half long period. I think the first 45 minutes was direct instruction. The second 45 minutes was group work. Mm -hmm. Well, they all came in in the first 45 minutes. Of and course. so they therefore were like, Mr. Brown, you didn't do it right. It's like, but you weren't there the whole time. Yeah. You only showed up for five minutes, took a snapshot and left. And like you, you kind of have to view a lesson holistically, I believe. I, I agree. And you need to view a teacher holistically. And that's why yeah. it shouldn't be just a one day, one shot thing. And that's why you should, you know. And then if you pop into a teacher that's doing a direct instruction, you're like, oh, maybe this isn't what I want to see. You know, kind of give a little wave and move on to another teacher, you know. Um, or looking at their board and seeing what they have going on. And, you know, maybe in their process you see, oh, well, after they do this, they're then going to do this. Either I'm going to stick around and see that or I might pop out and go next door and see something and then come back. And so, um, but I think that we need to learn from each other. Yeah. I think that that is a valuable element that Clark County School District is missing. I a thousand percent agree with you. And, and this is going back to an earlier point. Uh, we, you said that you largely didn't learn anything about being a teacher <laughs> in college. And yeah, I'll expand on that too. Because I, I remember when I signed up for the San Diego State Teacher Credential Program, I expected 
that I would show up and a professor would be like, okay, here's how to teach writing skills. Okay, here's a strategy for teaching, evaluating primary sources. But I'm, I'm pretty confident the vast majority of my time at the teacher's college was just them basically being a cheerleader for me. Saying like, kids have it hard. Be nice to kids no matter what. And it, it got really boring, frankly. And I, I mean, I, I learned way more about being a teacher with all my years of experience as summer camp counselors as a sub. Mm-hmm. That was... Because you were, it was front lines. Yeah. You were there, you were working with students. I think our education programs need to be more of less in the classroom work and, hey, go out and observe and, you know, see the different things that are happening. What you also get with college professors, unfortunately, is either those who've never been in a classroom or those that were in a classroom but were in a classroom 20 years ago. And and as I stated, strategies that work for one generation of students do not work for another generation. Nope. You got to integrate the smartphones somehow nowadays. <laughs> yes, you do. That is, that is definitely uh, for sure. Uh, okay, so Amy, what is the best lesson you've ever done? Is there, is there a, a specific lesson in your U.S. history class that what, once that lesson comes up, you're just like, yes. So I, I have a couple, and I hope Ooh, that's okay. okay. I have okay. a couple, um, and it's usually one that a lot of people skip over. I love the, and I call it, colonial belief systems of the um, similarities and differences of the Enlightenment, the Great Awakening, and Puritanism. Um, And so I have a lesson where we go through six kind of um, categories and then I divide them into those different categories and then they have to, for each one of the categories, say how would a Puritan believe about it, how would a member of the Great Awakening, and how would a member of the Enlightenment. And then we share out um, and they get this great idea of the different yet still similar ideas of colonies right before we go into the American Revolution and we're constantly feeding back to that and like well why why did the Declaration of Independence say this and where did it get its meat from well partly from the Great Awakening and partly from the Enlightenment yet you still have that Puritan work ethic where everybody is you know doing something for the community um, and making it a better society Um, and so a lot of teachers kind of glance over it. It's one of my favorite because I think it really gets them hooked on American identity and where this idea of being an American comes from. And it's okay to have different ideas, but still be able to create this beautiful society that was going um, into the American Revolution. Mm. Uh, and then once we get into the American Revolution, my students write Dear George letters as the ultimate breakup. Uh, using the Declaration oh, of Independence, that's and so they have to look at the Declaration. They have to have um, a uh, a statement of rights, like what are their rights. They have to have grievances, and they have to have then a statement uh, or a, a compromise. What have you done to make it better? And then a statement of independence. But they have to write it as if they're breaking up with somebody today. Um, and using the deck and I'm like, so look at those grievances. What are some of the things that ki- the king did to the colonies that happens in a relationship today? Because that's how I consider the Declaration of Independence. It is the ultimate breakup letter. Oh, it is the breakup yeah. of the colonies with King George the, the Third. Um, uh, and then later on, 
Uh, I do I do speed dating, and I know a lot of people do that. Yes, I've but heard it's great things. One about speed of my dating. favorites where they take on the persona of somebody in history. I let the kids dress up for extra credit. That always becomes really fun. Um, and then they have to kind of give their story and find not love connections. And that's where we have to like you know make it a little bit different. But they find idealistic connections with other. Um, uh, members of that historical period um, and the kids always love it and they always ask to do it again and again and again so we do it for several periods of time Man, yeah I, sh- I should come up with a way to do speed dating in world history I just oh you definitely could do it um, the Reformation um, the Industrial Revolution like anytime you have a group of people that are trying to get some things accomplished I love to do it with my reform movements I do it antebellum and I do it progressive Um, Because you just get personas that have a passion for something or to change something within their time period. And then the the kids just move along and both sides move and they have two minutes to plead their case. And at the end, they have to give a list of who their matches are. Okay, it would be pretty fun to do that during the... uh... Uh, Reformation have like yeah. Martin Luther yes. sit at the table with the Pope, right? They'd be like, "I'll never date you. <laughs> I hate you. You're trash." But then they find it that there's like some type of you we know, both believe in Jesus. Okay, there great. you go, right? That's, that's the one thing we agree on. <laughs> no, that'd be that'd be fun. Uh, all right, so then uh, my last question. I think we've already dived into this a little bit uh, today. Is um, you, you're a fan of the flipped classroom. Yeah. So just what, what are some general instructional strategies, educational concepts you either believe in or don't believe in? Um, and so we've talked about this. I think that you have to keep it moving for students. I yeah. don't think that you can um, go with one. And I think this is where teachers get is that they have one instructional strategy that they are like, this works. And they try to just do it every day. It's going yes. to get boring. I've it's going to get long. Exactly yes. That. Um, and so you have to keep it fresh. You've got to keep it moving. You've got to keep it different. And so when I plan a unit, I think about my different instructional strategies and I look and I say, okay, what would work best here? Do you need a video? Do you need to have some direct instruction when you're first going into that? How are you gonna do this? Is this a portion of history? I like to use the Civil War with that case that a lot of kids have a lot of background knowledge on. So do you necessarily need to teach the entire Civil War? No, they know the storyline. They know the narrative. Let's dig in, let's deepen further into things that maybe people don't talk about. Um, And I think that's where I get the passion for history is that I'm not afraid to talk about a topic that maybe history or society wants to skirt over, but I want to make it very unbiased and very um, historical in mind that, you know, you let's look at both sides. Um, When I teach government, I will always kind of take an assessment of my students and be like, okay, is my class more conservative or is it more liberal? And I will make sure in any discussion, I turn. I'm like, but what about this? Um, And my favorite thing at the end is when they will go into other teachers' classrooms, different periods, because I might be conservative in one period and liberal in another period. And in other teachers' classrooms, they're arguing about, am I a conservative (laughs) or a liberal? That to me is the ultimate, like I have, you know, unbiasedly taught what this governmental principle is. Um, And I try to do the same um, with US, but I'm all about really getting a feel for your class and for your 
class period. You might have a class of 40 that you can do amazing things with in a class of 23 that they can't handle it. Um, and so making sure that when, and that's why I hate the one lesson plan for every, I actually hate lesson plans altogether. That's Me probably too. not the best thing to say on a podcast. I don't think lesson plans help either students or teachers. I think it gets you into a niche and you're like stuck there. Well, I think that is, it is really important for every teacher to make one very detailed lesson plan. Um, and I, I just want to like hit copy paste on that right? for the whole year. Yes. And, but as you said too, not all my lessons are exactly the same, but I'll, I'll say probably 70% of the time my lesson will flow in the same progress. You know, mm -hmm. I frame the knowledge. I do direct instruction. Yes. We do group work activity involving a primary source. Yeah. That's the vast majority of the time. Every once in a while I'll throw in this kind of board game thing. And kids always love those. Uh, or sometimes it's like we watch a, a big portion of a, a movie or a YouTube mm -hmm. video. But, yeah, 70% of the time it's the same lesson plan. And if I was to honestly, like, deep dive and write lesson plans for every single subject, like, I taught five different classes yeah. last year. That's, that's ridiculous. It, it, you would be spending all your time doing that versus... And, and I think this is also where, like, I do have... Ha I, sorry, that was not very good grammar. <laughs> I, We're social studies teachers. <laughs> I have had, and I and I, I very recently had a student teacher that needed to script. She needed mm. to have, she could not think on her feet with questions and Ooh. answers. And she needed to script and she needed to have it in front of her. And I had to get very, very demanding about, let me see your questions, Kay. You need to have them right here because, you know, she was not good with, Let's flip the scenario. Let's see what we need to do to make this a better lesson. And so she needed to script. And so I think there are some teachers, I don't think that they will ever be great teachers. If you need to script a lesson plan, I think you need to start looking for a different career. Wow, um, bold you statement. Know, I do. I think you yeah. have to be able to think on your... And so I would not discount any educational concept because you never know what class needs what... I have my favorites... But if I saw that I had one class period that really needed me to do this one thing, I would make sure, even if I didn't like it, that that's what I was doing for them. Yeah. And so I think it's important that you try, especially at the beginning of your um, school year, to try a whole bunch of different strategies and throw it at kids and see what works see what best works, yeah. within each of your class periods. Yeah, like I, I know at Rancho High School, my kind of Dungeons and Dragons world history simulations were huge hits. Yeah. And I brought those over to Desert Oasis High School and the kids just weren't really into mm -hmm. them. And it was, it was first of all, really depressing for me because yes. I love those lessons. But <laughs> second of all, it's like, okay, yeah, I've got to, I've got to change it up to, to fit the vibe. And, and yeah, perhaps, I don't know if any of these educational concepts are all bad or all good. I think they have to be tools in your toolbox. Exactly. And there are some administrators who... I, I know there's like a war going on against direct instruction. Exactly. And I think there was... I, I talked to a teacher friend here in, in Vegas, and she told me that her school says, if you're doing any direct instruction, you're doing something wrong. And I'm like, but, but, but how are you supposed to like frame the procedures? How are you supposed to share the instructions of an activity without direct instruction. Exactly. And I, I would totally agree with you there. And I think that that's where um, being able to have a very 
direct conversation with your supervising administrator in saying, and I do it every year. And um, again, unfortunately, I am at that part where I can say, look, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and you're not going to And if stop. you're going to come in <laughs> and tell me that I can't, okay, that's fine. Um, you can mark me down on that. And I'm okay with being marked down on something. And as a new, and new teachers will come to me and I'll say, yeah, you can't really do what I do. Um, <laughs> you're not to that point yet. Um, but I do think it's important to have that conversation with you. And I love how you said that you, in your your unit lesson planning, you were like, look, I'm going to do this and then this and then this and this. And you have a pattern. And then you're going to throw yeah. in some kind of like different, like just to spice it up. It up. Yeah. yeah, right? And so that's important to let your supervisor know that this is how and I do things. And if you don't, I'd be more than happy. So I went flipped classroom and got away from lecturing to prove a point to an administrator. And so I did one unit, all direct instruction, and I did one unit with no direct instruction. Can I tell you there was no change in my assessment grades? Really? Nothing. Wow. There was no change a, in my assessment I have grades. always wanted to do that There's experiment. No, you have to have the wow. right supervisor. You have to have the right, because of course then I had to like, you know, kind of go behind the scenes afterwards and fix some stuff. But I said, can I do an experiment? And That's I did cool, one unit, all direct so instruction, you did and one unit, no direct instruction, and then took my grades to Wow. So for, for maybe if there's some people listening to the podcast that, yes. that are confused about confused what, a little bit what I just said, all this stuff is. so that means, Amy, what you did was, what class was it? Was it AP US? Uh-huh. Okay, so your period one class, every day the kids had homework of watching your lessons. Mm -hmm. And when they came in the class, they did some activity or Correct. something with you. Yes. And then period two, you gave PowerPoints, presentations, you taught them in the class, but then at home you had them do the work. Yes. And there was no... There was no change in a Change. There was that no change. That is amazing. And I actually me. didn't do like period one, period two. I did a whole unit with all, so it was AP. Like, so, because you might have one period that does a lot better with direction, direction versus not. I, no. towards the end, I get to my kids and I'm like, okay, hey, we have to learn. I want you to skim your textbook tonight. We have to learn this part of information. How would you rather have me teach it? Do you want me to lecture to you? Do you want me to put together some activities? And if you have that safe classroom, you don't do this at the beginning of the year. This is more towards your middle to the end. If you have that safe classroom, those kids will come out to you and say, you know what, I really liked it when we did this. And that's after any type of speed dating or any type of activity we do, that very next day, it's a breakdown to me. And it is, what did you like? What didn't you like? What could I do to improve it? How would you like to see it differently? I use my students and that scares teachers, but I think it makes me a better teacher. I'm not, and, and they will know that, and I say from the very beginning, I'm not gonna take it personally. Even though I said that's one of my weaknesses, but I think that's more of the overall student. So I'm not gonna take it personally. If you didn't like it, I would rather you tell me so that I know that I can fix it for next time if we use that strategy. But so I just, a whole unit of AP US history, I just lectured every day, went in, lectured the information, sent them home with primary documents to do assignments on. The next one, flipped classroom, all my PowerPoints, they are, I, I put a voiceover with them so they're not just reading, they can sit and listen to them. Because like I said, I'm a storyteller. So I don't read my PowerPoints. My PowerPoints have notes on them, but I tell the story. Oh yeah, I do the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So they listen to my PowerPoints for homework 
and then in class we would work on primary documents or charting or some type of an other skill. When we got to the test, those test results did not change. Wow, I am amazed that so you've done all this work that I thought I would I would inspire myself to do someday. Um, and and yeah, your your concept too that you just mentioned about uh, you sort of ask your kids how they want it done. Um, I'm actually at I think a pretty big advantage uh, because this year I taught ninth grade AP Human Geo and I had a great rapport with the students in that bunch. And next year I'm teaching AP World at my same school, and I'm sure almost all those kids are going to transfer advance over up and come on over. And so, uh, assuming that we don't go back in the classroom, at least I've made the rapport and the yes. relationship with those kids, so I'm really happy about that. And also, at the end of the school year, after the AP test, I sent my students kind of a survey where I was like, you know, what do you think Mr. Brown did well? What kind of lessons? And I also asked them, like, if you're taking AP World, how should Mr. Brown present the content to you? What parts of my class didn't you like? What parts did you like? And it was almost unanimous that kids hated it when half my class was a direct instruction lecture and half my class was a here's a textbook open it up in a small group read and answer some questions like the, the vast textbooks. majority they of the kids them. hated the textbook but think of our even just our just society like, you don't go to a book anymore to get information when you need something and so i yes my kids have a textbook because ap says they have to yeah. and they have a homework assignment that they have to do with that textbook it's very minimal because society itself doesn't use i call it fastest google i like will give them questions and i'll be fastest google and this is where i use their smartphones their tele their cell phones i have learned that i do more babysitting and micromanaging with cell phones in my classroom more than anything so my kids are allowed to have them out but they have to be face down so that they have this like attachment. They have to have mm -hmm. it within their sight. So while I am talking to them, while they have an assignment to do, they are face down. Now, I use it, there's Chromebooks available, but my students would rather use their phones. And I walk around and that's the other thing is that you have to be present within the classroom. As long as they are using that phone to do whatever assignment that I have given them to gain information, to garnish information, I have no, I have no problem with they're looking at it and yeah they're gonna get notifications come through and I'm like you can't sit on that notification but they've seen it so they feel like they're present in their lives because they've seen their notification I don't have problems with cell phones because of that being my policy generally I don't have problems with cell phones in the AP class but I absolutely have problems with cell phones in the regular and honors classes so and, and it, it's just if the student's using the phone responsibly, that's great. That's what yeah. I encourage. Yeah. But when a student is checked out and is watching Netflix, we got a problem. We do have a problem. And and I have I've dealt with that as well. And so then, you know, it becomes more of a one on one, you know, situation. I do not believe in a policy of the whole. Because Ooh, that's a good point. Yes. Because you have students that use them responsibly and you have students that do not. Um, and I think that's my one thing that, what I also think sad about student teaching in general is that you never see a, st a, a classroom start to finish. I think teachers should have an internship where they are almost like a CC at the beginning, but maybe then, you know, it, it kind of parts ways. Um, 
but you should see how to start a class and how to end a class. I did my student teaching in January. I didn't see either of that. I didn't see how you start a rapport and I didn't see how you end finish a semester because my semester in college was done before the school districts was. Um, and all of that was brand new to me. When I came into my own being as a teacher, had to ask a lot of questions about that. The best thing that I do with my students at the beginning of the year is I tell them, look, you are young adults. You want to be treated as an adult. Then you need to act like an adult. I will give you ultimate, if your behavior reflects an adult, I am going to treat you and I'm going to have respect for you as an adult. If you act like a three-year-old, I'm going to treat you and have respect for you as a three-year-old. So your behavior is what qualifies how I'm going to treat you. Um, I don't call them boys and girls. I think I've said this, but I don't, I don't, I don't even call them kids usually, unless it's more of an, of a, oh, you're my kids, yes. you know, type of I thing. I say that for example. I too. say ladies and gentlemen. I start mm -hmm. every day. Ladies and gentlemen, how are we doing? Um, they're think, my ladies and gentlemen. I think I say guys a lot. That's gender <laughs> problematic. So I should reconsider that. But that's just what I do. Um, oh, all right. So, uh, so yeah, Amy, now let's just talk about the current state of education. What uh, currently Clark County does not have a official policy nope. plan agenda of what's happening next month. But if you were the superintendent and the governor, what, what, what do you think about reopening schools this time? I'm very, so I have a 16 year old mm. who socially wants to go back to school so bad. Um, and so it, it pulls on my heartstrings. I think where Nevada is right now, I think it would be a danger to open up schools. Mm. I think yeah. that we should start online. Um, the plan that is put forth with the different cohorts that has not been approved by anyone yet. The problem with that is I see as a teacher um, is that if we do, if we start that program, we have to do it all year. Yes. So let's say, I don't know, miracles of miracles, there's a vaccine. Things just clear up. I don't know. I, I would like to pretend that somewhere down the road, I'm going to be able to see my kids face to face full time again sometime this year, maybe. If we start the plan that the, that the superintendent has put forth, we have to continue it all year. There's no going back. There's no changing it up because we are putting every class at a semester class. So I, my opinion is we start online. We start how the kids are. We start them in there. We have seven classes. Some schools have six. Some schools have eight. You start in how you would be doing your classroom. There has to be accountability. There has to be accountability for teachers. There's got to be accountability for students. Um, there has to be some type of video face-to-face -face learning in every, because that's the only way that you're going to gain a familiarity. I love that you said that you're gonna you're gonna have your kids again. So in the Inspire Academy, we started with ninth and tenth graders. I taught AP Human to the tenth graders. I was the only social studies teacher, so I had them for AP Human. I had them for US, and I had them in, for government. And so I had two sets of students. Well, we started with just you know AP, and then I rolled every year. So by the time we ended it, I was teaching all of the social studies APs, which was way too much. I, yeah. I thought oh I could gosh. do it. That was the, a uh. huge year of humility for me. Cool. And thinking like, oh, I can do this. I can, you know, uh, no, it, it, thank goodness the students knew who I was and they were able to like react to, you know, me having some humbling experiences, um, as a teacher. But I love that those relationships I was able to, they called themselves the Colossoonites. Um, and 
Because <laughs> I was the only social studies teacher they had. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to have that. You are. I won't, you know, um, with those students. And so the importance of having that, the video feed um, and the video lessons um, to be able to, you know, look at them and be able to relate to them in a sense when we went on to quarantine that's what I did I had video lessons for all my students at least um at least once a week my AP classes were twice a week and the first 10 minutes all I did was okay what's the news like what has everyone done what's going on with you and I let them talk to each other I stepped away from the conversation and let them talk to each other because I felt like they needed that connection and that dialogue with um, each other. Um, I have a family member who's gone through COVID. It is nothing to laugh at. Um, she probably, it's my mom. Um, she has had it worse besides dying. That's, you know, but there she's had it. I, she still can't walk. They're going to be sending her home in the next couple of days without walking because they don't know how to reach her anymore. Um, and so, it will change her life. It will change my family's life. I have a different outlook than a lot of people that maybe just somebody got sick and was sick for a couple of days or maybe no one you know has um, come in contact with this virus. Um, so the idea of putting teachers in danger, the idea of putting students in danger that then can take it home to elderly family members or uh, immunocompromised I, that to me, if I found out either that I had given it to a student or a student had given it to another student and then that student's grandmother or grandfather had passed away from it, that would wreck me. Um, and so I think until we can kind of have a balance and see that the virus is diminishing in society instead of increasing in society, I think opening schools is detrimental. However, that means then we're going to have to change in the future our educational practices because you're going to have kids whose parents aren't going to be on top of them. And I wish I could say that, that that's going to happen. You're not. And so those different um, levels of students within your classrooms for the next five years is going to be even more marginalized. Um, and yeah. so as educators, we're going to have to step on top of that um, I think especially right now who is going to be is your fifth grade, sixth, seventh grade. I think that element, because number one, they're in those rebellion years where they really don't want to do anything to begin with. Um, and then having to teach themselves and having to motivate themselves. They're very unmotivational at that point. Um, they're, those are the students that are going to get behind in this scenario. And so as educators, we're going to have to be available and enlightened and, you know, come with the knowledge that we are going to have to take steps back and scaffold even more to help those students once this crisis is over. Yeah. Yeah. And it really just comes down to that. I know some students were working for me every day and some students never showed up once. Um, I, I pray that we are allowed to give grades during yeah. this online there, thing. Because if we can't, no. then what's then the worth, point? What's the point? I agree. I and, and I think that that's even... So, you know, we do have that cohort C that is an option, um, too. But the idea of the cohort C is that there would be graded work. I also teach AP U.S. History online for MVLA. 
Um, and so I've done it. It's not ideal. Um, and but, you and have to have a motivated student. What percentage of your students failed that class? Can you say that? Um, I would say my failed, I would say is low. Uh, okay. I would say, so I generally have about 20 students. And I would say out of that 20, two to three fail. Okay, that's not a bad no. ratio. No, but their parents are paying for them to have an online class. So that also is that communication with the parents. If they are a student that is not completely online, maybe they're taking my class because it can't fit in with their um, traditional class. So they're taking, we call them part-time students, um, with their school counselor. Say, hey, your, your student that's failing, it's going on their transcript. Maybe a little reminder from you would help as well. You know, um, having that communication. Um, and at MVLA, we, you know, we have to show, we have to document that any student that's failing, we have reached out to the student, the parent, and if so, be it another school as well. Um, but, uh, you know, now, are, do they do as well as I think they probably could do? No. Yeah. No, you have a lot of middle of the road students that, again, like how you said, if you had seen them face to face every day, you could have pushed them up to be amazing students. But when you are motivated and it's online and it depends on what your family looks like, I my school that I teach at is very um, low socioeconomic. I had a lot of my um, students who worked at like grocery stores and their parents on the strip lost their jobs. They became the sole income earner. So for their family, it was more important for them to go to work and to have 12 hour days at work to bring home money to their family versus being online and i think that that's something we have to realize is again in this economic crisis if we close down again a lot of those fast food businesses grocery stores they are run by teenagers and they may be the sole income for their families and so again that comes with a connection with the students you know those that you're not seeing reaching out to them and saying, why am I not seeing you? Is there something that I need to know about? Well, and, and Amy, I think I do agree with you that the moral thing to do is close schools. But as you just alluded to, if schools are closed, then it really does kind of cause this ripple effect through the economy. Mm -hmm. And especially the, the Vegas economy. You know, if you're a person who works on the strip, but you have this kindergarten age child you've got to stay home and care for that child you can't just leave that child home i alone. agree there's so, no good answer and we have teachers with the exact same we yeah. have teachers that are going to be expected to be in their classrooms five days a week but they have elementary school students at home that are going to be in some kind of cohort and will go to school part-time and not full-time and yeah that is really tricky yeah if the kid only goes what to school two do? days a week yes. what about the other two what days? are the other three days a week when yeah. you're a teacher and you have students your own students at home um, it, it there's no good answers. I wish I could say there's one perfect answer. Yeah. There's not. It's a really well, hard crisis and, we face. And and I think that the model, this sort of hybrid model where kids go to school two days a week, I don't think that solves anyone's problems. No, it doesn't. I think I, it actually creates adds, problems. Yes. So, I mean, I I think that the decision has to be open schools as normal or put schools totally online. I agree. And... If you open schools as normal, it will help economically, but it'll hurt people's health. Mm -hmm. And if you put everything online, it'll you know, hopefully ensure people that stay healthy, but we'll screw over the economics of Nevada. And already our economics are totally whacked yes. from 
the strip being so depopulated. Um, and I, I was in a conversation with some other CCST teacher friends, and maybe this year they've got the budget to kind of float on through, but probably the next school year... It's going to be hard. Like, there will be cuts. Yeah. But then you also have teachers, like, here's, you know, I, so I technically have six years left. I have some options in that is going to make it four years probably the most that I need to do and I have been saving money to buy out my child graduates in two years and I think I need to step away maybe and see if a change I'm young enough that I can make a change in my life started teaching when I was 23 years old I was four years older than my students um teaching government that year um and um but that you know maybe looking and seeing if there's a change for me um somewhere you have teachers in my same predicament that are saying, I do not want to go back in this. If you start losing teachers right now as well, like that also economically is going to hurt and educationally is going to hurt the next generation. Um, and so I wish that they would do more to ask teachers. That, to me, I think that is the biggest drawback with what politically we've been seeing in this idea of what should we do is that teachers are not being asked what they feel could be. So I started, when they started putting out these cohorts, I started thinking about how I could do this. Now I have a child that can be at home and I don't, so I don't have that sort of thing. My idea was that you unite all the cohorts. So you have an A cohort that goes Monday, Tuesday, you have a B cohort that goes Thursday, Friday, and you have a C cohort that stays at home the whole time. So I would unite all three cohorts in using Google Meets or some type of a video. So on Mondays, I'm gonna have so many students, first period, in my class, okay? Physically, I'm gonna call them seat kids, all right? Then I am gonna turn on my computer, I'm gonna face it just towards me, um, because of FERPA rules, right? I'm gonna face it just towards me. My students in cohort B that come on Thursday, we'll still first tune period, in. will tune in. Mm. And mm. then, so I'll have my Monday, Thursday kids, and then my Tuesday, Friday kids. But And the and seat kids so, will tune in all the day. And time. the seat kids will come in when they're there, and then video. So then those Monday kids on Thursday, they're going to be at home. I'll have my Thursday kids in front of me, but the Monday kids will be in with me virtually. I'm going to call them my screen kids. And then my cohort C kids... They have to choose. Do you want to be Monday, Thursday, or Tuesday, Friday? And so that I get more than two hours with a group of students every week. I get four hours. I think I legitimately can do a good job if I have four hours with a group of kids. Now, what I've been told with that is I have to make it flexible. So does that mean that this year there's going to be more direct instruction when you're sitting in front of me? Probably right well but i would i'm i'm doing the flipped classroom yeah like i'm filming all my videos yeah saying you watch those at home and when you do come into the classroom that's when you'll we'll work on talk skills. about it and we'll especially do writing skills because mm-hmm. that's ap in a nutshell right there so what my then thought was with small group is that you then here is my problem with social distancing in classrooms how much collaborative work are you actually going to be able to do? How many mm. students are you going to be able to Good put together? Point. So do you have all of your seat kids spread out 
and you put two Chromebooks in front of them and you say, I need for you to dial up so-and-so from cohort B and so-and-so from cohort C, and that is your group. So you have one seat student and two screen students doing something together. And then the seat student could easily could ask be. the questions. Yes. That's interesting, but I just know that the, the cohort B and cohort C kids probably wouldn't be effective group workers yeah. in that environment. They'd, they'd tune out. I think you would depend on how well, you know what I'm saying, how well you position it. I think that that's yeah. the only way that's to do way. a collaborative way of, because I would love to say, okay, I'm going to have my 20 kids in my room. We're all going to be able to work together. I don't think social distancing is going to allow that. I have tables mm. in my rooms. I have no idea how they're going to seat kids in my room what, you have like to eight adhere, tables? right? Each table usually has like six, six kids. kids on oh, it. Wow, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, and they're Ooh. probably going to have to have two kids at each table. <sighs> yeah, like I, I really do feel that the the superintendent people above us they they come up with plans, but they don't really know the situation on the ground. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and and especially thinking about like kindergarten and stuff like how would you socially distance kindergartners i know know. those kids hug the teachers right every time and each other and each other i know and and making them wear masks i mean i don't even know what i'm gonna do with my high schoolers in telling them to wear a mask every day having a five six seven year old okay you need to wear your mask all the time oh my goodness you know yeah there there are no good solutions but I mean, I'm I'm gonna commit myself to doing whatever the the higher ups tell me to do, and my sense is that my principal really wants to to know the plan, so my principal can start setting up a school. So that stuff. we can write, so but that we can start. Everyone's dragging their feet, and I think the school district is supposed to come up with the final plan tomorrow, but they'll probably get it delayed. So who knows? Well, and and here's the even bigger deal. And this is who we need to look at. Our school district can come up with any plan they want to. It's the governor who decides what happens. And so it needs to be him that needs to step forward and make a decision right now as far as are we going back with some type of a hybrid model or are we going back online? And then stick to it. It's not fair to teachers. It's not fair to families. It's not fair to students to two days before school starts. Oh, the magical vaccine. Yes, yes. Everyone's saying. And I think that that's why, I mean, my school was actually working towards a plan of distance education right before they closed schools. If you would have given us another week, our distance education learning would have been so much better because we had taken teachers like myself who had done distance education. We had, for that next Monday, set up for after school to have teachers come in to learn different programs and to learn different strategies. And then all of a sudden, the Sunday night, shut us down. Shut us down. And, and yeah, I do remember, it, I think it was what, March 15th or something? It was like the, the last Friday we taught. We got an it was email. Friday the, the 13th. Oh, it's Friday, Friday the 13th. the 13th. Oh, that's a scary day. <laughs> the, the, the superintendent said, we're closing all after school activities. Yes. We're like going to really restrict movement on campuses, but school will be open okay. on Monday. Yes. Yes. And so I, I left my phone charger in my classroom. <laughs> like I left all kinds of stuff in my classroom that I would need because I was like, oh, whatever, I'll come back on Monday. But then at like 6 p.m. on the Sunday night, the governor says all schools are closed. Death. No one can go on come campus. in. It is just shut that shut down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Can I come and get my phone charger?" They're like, "No." 
And so I had to buy another one. Oh my gosh. I'm like, what I actually the did heck get to sneak this? in on that Monday because I was like, hey, if we're going to do this, I need stuff. And so my principal was like, okay, food delivery is going to be from this time to this time. You can come in. So I snuck in, grabbed a whole bunch of stuff. And then I think it was the next day they were like, nobody can be in buildings. Uh, yeah, then, um, but my teacher friends in California, that's where they actually had to go do all of their online. They had to go into the classrooms. And again, it's that accountability. So they were in their classrooms. And I think that that's, if we do online, I do think that we will be going into our classrooms mm. and that's where we're doing our filming. That's where we'll be doing all of our online. Well, I, I've and got planning. way more technology fun stuff in front of me right here. I, I don't want to go into my classroom, <laughs> but maybe, I mean, my school is only like three blocks away from here. So I would show up, I'd be like, Hey, I'm going home. Oh, yeah. And then they'd probably let me, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so, yeah. Wild stuff. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, I don't know, Amy, any, any other thoughts of the educational world you'd like to share with the public at large? Um, I would just like to put out there's my props for teachers. It's a hard it row. And I know that a lot of society looks at us and is like, yeah, you teach 180 days of the year. Um, know that you're good teachers. And I can't say every teacher. I wish I could. I wish I could say that there's this magic of every teacher and, and there's not. But know that your good teachers are working for your students 24-7 when they are there. And even during your weekends, I don't have a weekend free at all while I'm teaching. There is something that I'm catching up on. There's something I'm doing. My own family knows that this is the time to leave me alone. Um, And even during the summer, we talk education. We do educational things. We do educational conferences. We have meetings. We make plans. Um, And so it... It is a career. It is a passion. It is not a job. Um, And so, you know, the next time you have a teacher in your life that puts forth the extra mile, all we care is a simple thank you. That's really all we need. We don't ask for glorification, but just gratitude for some of the things we do. So just next time you see a teacher and you know they're one of the good ones, you know, pat on the back. Good job. It, Thank it really you for, helps. It does. It yeah. does. Yeah, Amy, I can show you my, my wall of thank yous <laughs> in my bedroom. I've saved everything my students have ever given me. To, and it, it motivates me to do this profession. And it's, I, I think you can really tell a good teacher by if they are putting their soul into it. I agree. Because I, I don't think there's been a single day in the last five years that I haven't put at least an hour into either teaching itself or creating a lesson or something in the realm of education because it's just, it's, it's, it's always happening. In always in there. Yeah. It's always doing it. And, uh, and, and there are times like uh, uh, some of my friends who I was talking to online the other day were, were really upset that they schedule these big epic uh, events throughout the year and they're like, Corey, come to Los Angeles, hang out with us. And of course I want to, but I always felt so guilty about not being in my classroom. And I know that I could create a lesson and a sub could do it, but I just, I feel so committed to physically being there for the students, more or less for their emotional needs than exactly. anything else. And uh, yeah, I can't, I can't give that up. 
Yeah. I care too much. And that's, again, that's when you know that you are passionate. When you are not looking at the next, okay. I mean, and I'm not going to say that I don't look for spring break. I definitely yeah, no, look, I look for spring break. I look forward to breaks, too. You know, I definitely look forward to ending that semester and, you Because during the school year, it's like, you know, 10 hours <laughs> yes. every day. And now it's like, you know, one hour every day. That's, so, let's, you know, let, let's be honest there. But, you know, it, it there is a lot to be said for a teacher that believes that their presence in front is just as important as the content that they are teaching. Yep. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Amy. Thanks for having me. Uh, If anybody listening has any questions about the podcast or any requests for topics, go ahead and send me an email at vegasmoderneducator at gmail.com. Thanks so much.